This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Herb Welsh is still angry about something that happened 150 years ago in Colorado. His ancestors in the northern Arapaho tribe were attacked by cavalrymen on the eastern plains. Some 200 Arapaho and Cheyenne died in what became known as the Sand Creek Massacre, mostly women, children, and elderly men. Now, Welsh is working to create a memorial at the state capitol, and his work took a big step forward last week. Herb, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you, John. Uh, Your film is part of the leadership in the Northern Arapaho tribe in Wyoming. Why are you working to make this memorial happen? And do you think it'll help address the anger you still feel over the massacre? Uh, First, let me say thank you for allowing me to uh, to be present today on your on your radio show. Hmm. Uh, My name is Herb Welch, and I represent the Northern Arapaho Council of Elders. I don't represent the tribe as a whole. I, I represent our elders who are who feel that they, it's time to have a voice in how things are happening. Um, that being said, at the time of this incident, uh, the Arapaho tribe and the Cheyenne tribe were not divided into north or south. We were we were entities, and we uh, traveled in small bands. We gathered for uh, oh, I guess ceremonies and. and uh, uh, other occasions, but uh, usually we're in small bands. And and so are, are you in the healing process now with this possible memorial that will be placed near the state capitol? Well, I believe I believe this, this monument and this memorial will help us begin to heal. Uh, I'm in the position of, as you said, I, I am angry. I must, I must say it's, uh, to define anger, it, it's a hard thing to do. Uh, what I feel is a lot of animosity. I do feel anger. Uh, I can't say hatred, but um, see, we, we, we Native Americans, we, we carry something that they call generational trauma. And that means that whatever happened to our ancestors, whatever happened to our, <clears throat> excuse me, whatever happened to our, our uh, forefathers, those, those tragedies, those atrocities still affect us today. And that creates a, a, a boundary where we cannot cross unless unless uh, we've, we find it in our heart that we're actually trying to remediate the situation. The monument and the memorial uh, will help us become recognized in Colorado. One of the issues that I have, and I'm speaking on a personal basis, is that I feel that Colorado has overlooked the Arapaho and the Cheyenne people for far too long. We were victims of an atrocity, a war atrocity. We were victims of the frontier mentality. We were victims of so many things, and I was asked yesterday, how did we feel when the Native Americans uh, were doing, I guess, attacking the settlers, attacking what they termed as innocent civilians? Uh, Were we warlike? Were we uh, hostile? Were we all of these labels that they had for us at the time? But in our minds, this is our position, especially for the Arapaho people, north and south. We believe that Colorado belongs to the Arapaho. We believe that with all of our hearts. It's our homeland. Whenever anyone goes to Colorado, we always say we're going to our homeland. And we felt that we were defending our homeland. Colorado, uh, the Front Range area, all the way into Kansas, Nebraska. That was our home range. So do and you that think, was our homeland. So do you think with that in mind, the memorial will change how the history of Sand Creek and your history is taught in schools? 
Well, what we're thinking is that if we can get a foothold and if we can get recognition from Colorado. See, a couple of years ago, I think it was last year or the year before, the, the governor offered an apology. The Methodist Church offered an apology. But an apology is not enough. Apology doesn't rectify or even begin to uh, heal. We can't forgive and forget that easily. There, there must be uh, reparations. There must be recognition. There must be possibly restitution. All of these things are on the board. There's, there's many issues that we have to cross before we can say healing or we can even say uh, closure. We, can, we cannot say that. This, this memorial, this, this monument... Uh, it'll help us. It'll help us establish a foothold in Colorado's memory. And the downtown area is a great place for that. The Capitol Hill is a great place for that. Uh, as you know, 1864, after the massacre, the Calvary, John Shivington's unit, paraded Cheyenne and Arapaho body parts through downtown, and it was celebrated. And on and the Capitol grounds it's, it's, now, it, 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 that, that did happen. And there's a Civil War yes, soldier a statue Absolutely. that was erected uh, more than a century ago. And it lists Civil War battles that Colorado soldiers participated in. And Sand Creek is on that list. Um, and you Absol- know about 15 absolutely. years ago, lawmakers added a plaque. And it says the yes. Civil War monuments designers mischaracterized history. Would it be more absolutely. meaningful for you if the new Sand Creek Memorial was located near this Civil War statue as opposed to, let's say, down the street? Well, we, we looked at those options, and uh, we, were, we, discussed, we discussed this with many advisors, and they told us that one of, one of our only uh, hopes were to, to, I guess, compromise the location. We wanted it on the Capitol steps. We, I mean, next to the, next to the, to the I think it was to the north of the Civil War mon- Monument on the, on, the, on the lawn. And uh, the advisory panel had issues with that. Uh, many people were opposed to that. So we decided, well, in order to gain favor, we may have to compromise our location. Now, we Native Americans have constantly compromised, always compromises is what's asked of us. That compromise is okay because our long-term view is to establish a memory in Colorado's mentality that this land was owned by people that are indigenous long before the settlers arrived, long before gold was found, long before Denver was a city. And if with this monument in place, it'll 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 help that it'll draw that. I mean, there'll there'll be people that want to be educated. They'll want to know about Sand Creek, but Colorado has to recognize and and understand the atrocity that happened. You can't sugarcoat what happened that day, eighteen sixty four, November twenty ninth. You cannot sugarcoat that. You cannot idolize that. You cannot, I guess, make it any less than what it is. And the design of the and the design of the memorial, uh, excuse me, uh, is isn't totally finished. But one element that stands well, out is a path that that recreates this bend in the river where the massacre took place. Yes, um, yes, it's a very visual uh, uh, depiction of of what happened there. It is, it is, and it has deep meaning to us. The original design has changed because. The, adv- the advisory board, the powers that be, say, oh, you can't have this, you can't have that, it's too much, it, it, we, you have too much here. And so we've downsized, we've downsized, we've compromised, we've compromised. Since the inception of this, we've constantly compromised, and here we are. Finally, we have a chance for approval. But we have to go across the street. We have to be in Lincoln Park, or uh, the, the Veterans Park, as they call it. And that is still okay with us, because now 
we can say, okay, we have a better chance of getting the memorial passed. We have a better chance of getting recognition here. And once we have that, then we can work with Colorado. We can work with the educators. I've had after the after the uh, after my uh, testimony in front of the advisory panel. I have I had educators. I had teachers come up to me and invite me back to Colorado to help them create, uh, speak on behalf of our uh, ancestors that were massacred and explain the truth from the native side. There, there, are no, there are no curriculum on what happened at Sand Creek. None of that is ever uh, taught in schools. There was romanticized versions of it. It was a battle. It was a war. That was not the case. It was a downright massacre. So would you be, with the memorial, maybe moving forward, that would be acceptable for you? But you also mentioned reparations or, or, or things yes. like that. Uh, yes. Is that something that you believe is still on the table with state legislators? We don't know if it's on the table, but this gives us a foothold. Once we, once we've established, once we are established, once our, once our memorial is in place, we have something that's tangible. We have something tangible that people can say, we know about, we know about Sand Creek. We know what happened there. We know the atrocities. There are many people who are sympathetic to our cause. There are many people who say, why don't, why don't, why hasn't this already happened? Here it is 150 years later, and we're just now opening our eyes to the bloody truth that Colorado is responsible for this. <clears throat> the governor, John, Ed- John Evans, approved this Colonel Shivington to go out and hunt Cheyenne and Arapaho people. That, that's documented. He came back with war trophies, human body parts, paraded him through town, and he was welcomed as a hero. Herb, we're going to have to leave it there, Herb. Thank you so much for taking the time. All right. Thank you so much. Herb Welsh is a northern Arapaho from Fort Washaki, Wyoming. He's among those working to create a Sand Creek Memorial at Colorado's state capitol. We'll be right back. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. I like money. (laughs) I do. That's actress Anna Gunn playing an investment banker in the new film Equity, which opened in Denver and Boulder last week. It portrays women on Wall Street in a raw, complicated, and modern way. I am so glad that it's finally acceptable for women to talk about ambition openly. But don't let money be a dirty word. We can like that, too. The film's screenwriter is Amy Fox, who says growing up in Boulder helped shape her approach to this story. Fox joins us along with producer and co-star Alicia Reiner, who's best known for her roles in Orange is the New Black and How to Get Away with Murder. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Amy, where did the I like money line come from? Well, when when uh, we started working on this film, um, the two producers, Alicia and Sarah Megan Thomas and I, we interviewed a lot of women that work on Wall Street. And, and one of the first women I spoke to had started in the 80s. And she talked a lot about some pretty misogynist, pretty openly sexist things she encountered. And when I asked her kind of what kept you going, what got you to work every day, I anticipated her to say something about her strength of character. And she just looked at me and said, I really like money. And I realized hearing that, that I had not heard a woman ever speak about money in such a direct, unapologetic way. So immediately I wanted that to be in the film. And it is a big central part of that film, that line particularly. Yeah. And what was important, I think, for me was to look underneath that line because 
you know, what is money? Money means different things to different people. And so, you know, that speech has been compared by some people to the greed is good speech from the original Wall Street. But for me, what I was interested in is for a woman to say that, what does that mean? And, and a lot of the women that I had interviewed had come from uh, a place where there was not money in their family growing up, and they had a real need for security, a need for the confidence of knowing that they could take care of their families. Um, and, and so I really wanted to get into what is money for this woman? Is it power? Is it uh, security beyond just I want to accumulate a stack of coins? Right. And Alicia, you came up with the idea for this film along with your co-producer and co-star Sarah Megan Thomas. Why did you want to make a film about women on Wall Street? Well, first of all, we've never seen a woman in this world. It's funny when we <clears throat> when we were really selling the idea to our investors, we made a sizzle reel, which is where you make a, a little movie about what the movie's going to be, a little teaser, as it were. And my cute husband was the voiceover, and we had images from every Wall Street movie in the past. And my husband said, you know, he's, she's not a secretary. She's not a prostitute. She's not a wife. She's not the token woman in the background. And that's pretty much the only thing we've ever seen of women in this world. And yet, there are all these spectacular real women, many of whom were our investors, many of whom we interviewed, whose stories have never been told. And I'm always, you know, as an as an artist, I'm most interested in telling stories that have never been told. Um, so I was deeply interested in that. And statistically speaking, the inequities, um, as I like to say, I, I thought, oh, my God, what if we could tell this amazing financial thriller that has a stealth bomb social issue impact of really changing things for women on Wall Street and in corporate America in general. So, Amy, for you, actually, for for either of you, did you hope the film inspires some sort of change in the culture for women on Wall Street? Or is this simply just a, a good thriller? No, I mean, it is a very good thriller, um, and it does keep people at the edge of their seats, which is really important. Um, but we are already starting to see, I mean, what we wanted to do is further the conversation. And we're starting to see a few things when we do the Q&As, when we talk about the film. Um, a lot of women are coming forward and saying, that's my story. That happened to me. That happened to me yesterday. Um, and perhaps more importantly, the men that are seeing it are starting to have a different conversation as well. So I've had men speak out and say, you know, this kind of thing has been going on at my firm and I didn't really notice it, but now I'm noticing it. And so I think, you know, it is bringing out into the open and you know, along with this year we're having where we have the first woman running for president, it's an extraordinary time to be talking about what are the challenges for women um, in, who are moving into positions of power. And one reoccurring issue in the film is the idea of, of women being passed over for promotions by men, uh, uh, even by other women, actually, as well. Uh, here's a clip. Anna Gunn's character again. She's in her office when her deputy stops in. Yeah. Everyone's saying there's going to be some movement around here. So I'm wondering if now might be the time to talk about that promotion. No. Now is not the right time. HR is out there snatching blackberries. I get that. But I've been undercompensated two years in Aaron, a row. I told you I'd make a push for you, and I will. But it is a down year. 
And this doesn't just happen on Wall Street in the film. It happens to a computer programmer at one of the companies that Anna Gunn's character invests in. And that's an industry that has gotten a lot of criticism for being a very male-centric club. It's also an industry that's thriving in Boulder and Denver, where some tech companies have gone public in recent years. Amy, I wonder if it was intentional to also show a certain level of undervaluing of women in the tech industry, not just in the financial industry. Yes, very much so. I mean, my hope and and I think our, all of our hopes in the film is that, that a lot of the challenges we're writing about and talking about are not limited to Wall Street. And um, that, all, you know, if you look at statistically at what happens to women um, across industries, whether it's film, whether it's technology, whether it's business, the statistics are very, very similar in terms of women getting to the top, women getting hired, women getting promoted. Um, so we did want to kind of reflect that uh, through throughout the film. Uh, Alicia, what are your thoughts on that? Hello, Alicia. Did we lose her? It looks like we lost her. Well, we have you here, Amy. We'll <laughs> okay. continue. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're talking with screenwriter Amy Fox of Boulder, one of the producers and stars of Equity, a new film that opened in Denver and Boulder last week. It portrays women in power positions on Wall Street. I want to get to another issue that comes up, and it's pregnancy. One character in the film gets pregnant, then tries to hide it from her boss. At the same time, there's a lot of alcohol use. It's a huge theme in inequity. I can't think of many scenes where the characters aren't doing some sort sort of drinking uh, and and living these kind of kind of dual lifestyles. Uh, this woman is hiding her pregnancy, but here she's going out for a drink because she needs to. It seems to get ahead. How common is that? From what you know about the culture at Big Bangs, what do you think? Well. It was a very common theme among the people we interviewed, the idea that you would keep your pregnancy hidden to the last possible moment, particularly if you were looking to be promoted as that character Aaron is. There's a certain level that you can get to uh, at the bank where you are now you now have a little more security in your job. You can also afford the child care that you might need to work those hours. There's a certain point where it becomes perhaps less of an issue. But mm. when you're working your way up and you have to tell your colleagues that you're pregnant, immediately the perception becomes, how is she going to pull her weight? Is she going to come back from leave? And for that reason, the women hide the pregnancy. Um, regarding the drinking, the so the first scene in which the other characters discover that Erin is pregnant is that she's pouring out her martini glass right. um, and filling it with water in the bathroom. So she needs to keep up this appearance that she can drink with the boys and hang out, but she's actually not drinking. She does later in the film have a glass of wine um, which we get asked about sometimes but it's one glass <laughs> Alicia we do have you back I, I yeah. want to ask about the Naomi character uh, she mm -hmm. comes from a poor background she wasn't uh, quote bred into Wall Street necessarily mm. do you find that a lot when you meet women in the finance industry we do you know she was based very much on a lot of women we interviewed and many of them were grew up very poor and um, it's interesting when we talk about that money speech and that greed, you know, when it's compared to greed is good and we really disagree with that um, because a lot of, you know, a lot of people take a lot of different things from that beautiful aria that Amy wrote. And for me, it's, it's about worth, but one of our investors feels like, it's actually about security, security and about feeling secure. Hmm. And I. 
And we've lost Amy again, or, uh, oh. Alicia again. So uh, we're going to continue on. You wrote the screenplay after hearing this idea from both Alicia and Sarah. How did growing up in Boulder inform how you approached the film? It's a great question. Um, when I thought about a lot when I was asked to do the show. Um, so one thing, my brother John, who grew up in Boulder with me, uh-huh. uh, he works in finance. Um, and so it was interesting, I, having kind of watched him enter that world, I would say culturally it's a pretty different world. from, And I didn't encounter that culture of sort of big city living, long hours, um, that kind of really, really – strong, assertive mentality. Yeah, rigid um, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, it's just different culturally. And having kind of seen a member of my family cross over into that world, I think, was was really helpful for me to understand how would someone like Naomi end up in that world because she also didn't come from that world. Um, the other thing, which I don't even think Alicia knows because I was <laughs> only thinking about it this morning, is that I actually uh, I volunteered for two years when I was in high school in Boulder in the Boulder DA's office. Um, and so the law was a passion of mine. And so Alicia's character is a prosecutor. And I think that um, having had a really early interest in that that I explored here in Boulder, uh, that that was, that was something that probably fed its way in without my even realizing it. Yeah. You drew some influence from Working Girl, I hear. Uh, that's the 1988 film where Melanie Griffith is an unapologetic woman succeeding in business and in seducing Harrison Ford. I didn't know they let bad girls into these things. Do I look like I don't belong here? No. Mm. No, no. I'm sure you're a real ace at whatever it is that you do, do. Damn straight. But how you look... I have a head for business and a bod for sin. Is there anything wrong with that? You're smiling as we play that clip. But but in all seriousness, though, that, that sounds really similar to scenes in your movie in a different way. The men are still ultimately in charge. What would have been too unrealistic to put the women in charge? Uh, well, we again, we wanted to reflect a sense of truth and authenticity, and we wanted the film to... to contribute to the conversation about where that industry needs to go Mm. to retain female talent. Um, So some people have said that they, you know, especially I think a woman I spoke to who mentors young women going into Wall Street, she wanted the film to be more aspirational, right, to reflect, you know, you go girl, you can get it. Um, But for us, I think that wasn't the experience, as particularly of the women Naomi's age, the women who are in their 40s and 50s who have given their lives to this industry. A lot of them have have not broken that glass ceiling. So we wanted to reflect that. Um, The other thing about Working Girl, when we were putting together that sizzle reel, it occurred to us, oh, there is one movie where there was a female executive in 1988. How That's kind of extraordinary. Um, But what I realized about that film is, and you can hear it in the scene you played, is that it's a romantic comedy. And I think that you could never have pitched in 1988 a film that was a financial thriller with women at the center. I think you could have only pitched it as a romantic comedy where the women happen to also be really amazing businesswomen. So I'm hoping that we've and that was a big reason that we did not have – I mean, there is a, a love interest in our film. Yeah. But we did not want the film to be about can she get the guy as well as getting the job. So it was a, a definite distinction between that and, and it seems to be it's a movement forward. Overall in the film, 
there just seems to be a culture where women have to strike a balance between being assertive, so they're taken seriously, but not too aggressive. Could you relate to that working in Hollywood and, and, and doing this? Yeah, I think I think probably women everywhere can relate to that. And certainly Anna Gunn has spoken about it a great deal um, in terms of one of the the not, number one thing that she wanted to kind of get right in this role is that balance of um, because women are aware of this. So they play it a little bit like a game. The smart women that do get ahead, they know when they have to appear vulnerable, when they have to appear strong. Um, and it's unfortunate that they have to worry so much about how they're being perceived. But the women who who know that's happening are able to sort of try to use it to their advantage mm-hmm. as opposed to it being their undoing. I, I want to play another scene uh, where Anna Gunn's character lets out all of her frustrations on a cookie that she gets from her underlings in the office. What is this? That is well, you the... Said you wanted... you to... How many chocolate chips are in my cookie? Um... <laughs> Did anyone teach you basic math? Count the chips. Three. Three. Yes. And your cookies, I saw them, and they were oozing with chocolate. And my cookie has three mother chips! That is a pinnacle scene in this film. Where did that come from? So I wish we still had Alicia on the line. She actually heard that story um, almost word for word. I wish I could take credit for it. But it was a story that was shared with her, a true story that had happened where... This very powerful woman was given this chocolate, uh, this cookie with hardly any chocolate chips, and looked around at the men, and they had all this chocolate. Um, and I think for us, it's it's a it's a fun scene to watch. It's a fun scene for Anna Gunn to play, but it's also a chance for this character who's been holding in so much all through the movie. There are these slights, there are these judgments, there is all this pressure building on her, and she always remains her composure. Mm-hmm. She always sort of responds in the way she's supposed to, and this is a moment when she just really lets out the frustration and the rage that she. Feeling. Now, Alicia's character doesn't work on Wall Street. Uh, she's a prosecutor investigating financial crimes, uh, and the character doesn't face a lot of sexism, it, it seems, though she does use her sexuality to her advantage in a scene. Did you want to make a contrast between her life as a government uh, prosecutor, who you point out several times is not paid very well, to the lives of the women in finance who are going for that money? Well, it is interesting. We interviewed several prosecutors as well. And uh-huh. I interviewed um, a female prosecutor who prosecutes financial crimes. And the sexism that she described was, it, I think it was less uh, intense and it was much more subtle. It was smaller things. Uh, like at one point, I think she um, they wanted she was the only person using a certain bathroom. And so they wanted to get rid of the bathroom and she had to fight for them to keep this women's room in, in one of the offices. Um, and she had told me, actually, that there are plenty of women prosecutors, but that actually when she moved into the financial side of prosecution, there were fewer and fewer women. Um, so we did want to reflect that a tiny bit. But yes, in her, you know, her arc is much more about um, wanting to sort of fight for justice, wanting to wear the white hat, and at the same time, uh, interacting with this level of sort of wealth and influence that she herself doesn't have access to. She's trying to raise her family um, and sort of her complicated relationship with the idea of her her own desire to make a living. I understand that uh, women provided most of, if not all, of the funding to, to make this film. And that's quite remarkable on its own. Do you think you found a new model that other filmmakers could could follow? I wonder. I think that will be interesting. I mean, I think that in our case, what was really uh, interesting for us was that 
we had we had the ability to meet women who wanted to see their stories on screen. They were extremely passionate about the topic, and they've continued to be passionate. In addition to funding the film, they've been uh, really exp- our, our executive producer, Candy Strait, is literally flying around the country on her own dime every night to host screenings of the film. Um, they're very passionate. At the same time, although they are women whose voices and stories we haven't heard, they happen to be women with some resources so they, they could fund a film where, right. you know, sometimes when you go to make a film about an underrepresented population, those are not going to be your investors. So I think we hit like a lucky, a lucky uh, combination Point there. there. Yeah. As we wrap up here, at the end of the film, it left me feeling like I didn't want anything to do with Wall Street. I didn't want a career in Wall Street. I didn't want to even look at it. Did you all talk about that and consider whether you wanted to make it look more appealing? Yeah. I mean, I do think there is the appeal and there will always be the appeal of this sort of hard driving world um, where I think there is a sense of adrenaline and risk taking that that I think that is what what drives people into that business as well as the capacity to to make money. Um, So, you know, I think that that appeal will hold. I do think that especially in recent years, the the, you know, Wall Street, there's been a lot of questions about what goes on there, how it goes on. Um, and that's definitely the mood of the cultural moment we're in. And um, so we felt like we, we definitely wanted to find a balance of we wanted to show that world with some authenticity to it, that it's not what you see in Wolf of Wall Street. It's not prostitutes and cocaine. These are hardworking people, actually, mm-hmm. that go to work and work long hours and in many ways sustain our economy. But at the same time, we wanted to show a little bit of the darker side of what that is. Amy. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Boulder native Amy Fox is the screenwriter, and we had Alicia Reiner. She's a star and producer of the new film Equity. Amy will do a Q&A after screenings in Denver tomorrow and Boulder on Saturday and see a trailer of Equity at CPRnews.org. Just ahead, we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Pokemon Go was arguably the game of the summer, even if its user numbers are now declining. For many, it was a fun scavenger hunt of sorts, just a game. But Zhenghua Yang has a different outlook on gaming. He says video games saved his life. Yang, who is 26 and goes by Z, founded the Boulder company Serenity Forge. It develops what he calls value-driven video games. He gave a TEDx talk at CU Boulder earlier this year and releases a new game next week. Welcome, Z. Hey, glad to be here. We'll talk about what value-driven games are in a bit. But at 18, doctors tell you you have a severe blood disease, and it started with a nosebleed. Yeah, um, it was a it was a pretty scary time for me. Um, I was my what second month in college, I believe, and um, so I had a nosebleed for about fourteen hours straight. Uh, <laughs> I mean, at the time I had a midterm, so of course, you know, being being who I am, I had to go study. Uh, and then uh, and my friend told me that it's uh, you got to get that checked. So I went in. Uh, it turned out that I had very low blood platelets um, due to an unknown issue. Even even until now, it's pretty mm-hmm. pretty much unknown. And uh, within a matter of uh, 24 hours, I was put into my deathbed. And, um, and uh, yeah, miraculously, I'm still here today. Uh, do, yeah. do, do, do you have a name for what this possibly could be? Yeah, so so the I guess the simplest way to describe it, it it's called the it's chronic refractory ITP. Okay. Um, so so basically, what it means is uh, I have an auto, autoimmune issue that kind of uh, kills my own blood platelets on whenever I go. So blood transfusions, platelet transfusions didn't quite even work um, because it was so severe. And you're not cured. 
No, unfortunately not. However, I am at a much more stable level now, um, so I'm able to walk around. Uh, no football, though. <laughs> <laughs> You've played video games since you were a kid. Uh, I understand your parents were gamers. You played uh, League of Legends while you were hospitalized. For non-gamers, that's a multiplayer online game. It pits teams against each other uh, in a battle arena. Uh, you said playing the game gave you a purpose, but it also helped you get the medical needs that you addressed. How did that play out? Yeah, I mean, uh, online games especially, there there are so many things that you can draw value from. Uh, League of Legends, for example, was, was a game that I played quite a bit since the beginning of that game. Mm. Um, and through playing that game, I was able to meet with a lot of people over the world, uh, all over the world. Um, you know, when I was hospitalized for those two years, uh, I didn't really have that much of a drive uh, to live anymore. Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine it nowadays. But, you know, looking back at it, uh, I was told that I might die um, the next day, uh, pretty much every single day for two straight years. Uh, when you're when you're told that kind of a mentality, um, there's really not much more you could do. However, with all these friends that I met online, um, they kept on checking in with me, making sure that I took my medicine, making sure that I've been getting sleep. And eventually I was connected with a uh, medical researcher who, uh, who introduced me to some of the world's best hematologists uh, who actually taught me uh, how to take care of myself. And I met with them and uh, gave me really critical advice that kept me safe when things went south. And so that's a critical uh, group of friends, uh, online community you have. Absolutely. I, st- I'm, I still chat with them all the time today. You launched your company, uh, Serenity Forge, in 2012 with the game Loving Life, and I understand it. it's a bit autobiographical. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, so Loving Life is a, it's a pretty short game. Um, it took me maybe a couple months to make. It's actually uh, a non-fictional visual novel based on the, the illness, the story, mm. um, basically the 24 hours of my, my illness developing. Um, I wanted to uh, create a game out there that shows people that there are much more you could do with video games. And I wanted to share my story and show, especially teenagers or, you know, in middle school, high school, that life is very precious. And I almost lost my, um, you know, try this game out, be in my shoes for a little bit and see, you know, how it feels. Maybe you'll find your own way of appreciating life as well. Have you heard from players who've said that, wow, that made an impact on me? Yeah, actually, um, I received a, I mean, one notable example uh, uh, was uh, a couple months after I received it, uh, uh, or a couple of months after I released the game, I received an email from someone from Spain. Um, he, you know, he didn't really speak English very well. His email was pretty broken. Um, however, you know, I was trying to understand it. It turned out that um, he was going through severe depression and uh, he was actually planning to commit suicide. And he came across my game, Loving Life. And uh, after playing it, he was so motivated that he decided to enroll into a game design school. And he actually just got enrolled and he emailed me to thank me for for that experience. Oh, in TEDx, you gave a TEDx talk at at CU Boulder in May and you said video games define our world. Uh, Is that a specific example of that where somebody's essentially saying this game is defining my life and, and future? Um, you mean that's that's definitely one example. I mean, there are so many things that video games affect our world nowadays, uh, whether if it's in education or scientific research or social impact or something like that. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there it's just. It, I think fundamentally, there are uh, video games uh, drive, especially our future generations. So whatever they play, they're going to grow up believing it as well. I see. So then, what makes a game quote value driven? 
Yeah, so so I think the best way to describe it is um, when you think about uh, creating any kind of piece of art, you can create a movie, you can write a novel, right? Um, it could be your typical uh, you know, Angry Birds type kind of media where you knock, knock over some bricks and you waste some time and you're done at the end of the day and you didn't really get much from it. Or it could be your Citizen Kane or 1984 or, you know, something that's a lot deeper. Mm. Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? I mean, mm-hmm. these are the media uh, pieces that really drive society and push it forward. The video game industry is still in its infancy. I mean, it's yeah. been around for about 20, uh, I mean, well, more than 20 years, but it really developed in the past 20 years quite a bit. Mm. And... um and nowadays, it's getting to the point where the, you get these large companies that create a lot of video games purely for profit and not necessarily for that kind of social consciousness. And that's kind of where I believe that the medium will head towards in the future, where people are going to start demanding more, something more beyond, well, I'm just wasting time on your phone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Zhenghua Yang. He founded the Boulder company Serenity Forge, which develops video games. It has a new game out next week called Foresighted Fantasy. I understand your company is working on another big project besides that rollout. Uh, this one is with a hospital. And you're creating video games for terminally ill kids. T- tell me about one of those games. Yeah, so, so, so these games that we're creating, so I, I guess the best way to descri- describe it is uh, imagine if you walk through the hospital walls of a children's hospital hmm. and you have these 20 feet long uh walls um you know uh, displays hd displays there and kids can just stand in front of these walls and put up their arms and just fly around as an eagle inside a world for a six-year-old for an eight-year-old who's going through chemotherapy for their leukemia uh you know for some for a kid who is diagnosed with terminal cancer um you know when they're four years old and they're hospitalized by the age of five and they're told they're going to pass away by the age of seven for kids like that they're able to live in that hospital and experience something that they cannot otherwise. Um, it goes back to something that I experienced in the past where, um, you know, when I was trapped in the hospital, I had nothing except for video games. Why not bring that to other people who may need it as well? Yeah. And let's talk about your new game coming out next week. It's called Foresighted Fantasy. I got a chance to preview it. It's a 2D puzzle game where you're solving puzzles rather than engaging in actual combat based on the game Portal, if people understand what that is, kind of multidimensional, using interesting ways to move about the game. What can people take from this game and apply to their lives? Yeah, so one of the one of the things that we're working on with the game is actually to to maybe u- utilize it in classrooms even, uh, where because so so describe Foresight of Fantasy a little bit more. Yeah. Um, it's this game that really challenges the way that you think about how um, perspective works. Um, you know, I, the the game features uh, two main characters, uh, a, a woman, a man and a woman, uh, who are separated by the limits of the screen, and you have to try to reunite them together with the you know with the puzzle mechanics. Um, so basically, kind of like in Pac-Man, where when you wrap around the screen, it comes back. Oh, the you other go off the screen and comes at the yeah. All right. right, right. So imagine if you're playing a Mario game, uh, you can do that at any time to to kind of get over your obstacles, and that's kind of what Foresight of Fantasy is. Because with Mario, you could only go forward. You couldn't go backwards. You hit that back wall, right? Right. Yeah, and a little different. Yeah, exactly. And this game just really challenges you to kind of critical, critically think and think about, you know, a, a different kind of mindset. I mean, Portal is a great description for other gamers, you know, especially indie gamers out there. Braid is another really uh, a critical example of uh, kind of how this game challenges the way you think. And we have a trailer of Foresighted Fantasy at CPRnews.org. 
Pokemon Go, we mentioned that in the beginning, was was really popular this summer. I, I saw people chasing Pokemon around the city of Denver outside my house, actually. And, and this was an augmented reality game. So the game directs you through the physical world using the phone's camera or projecting images on the screen. Is there any plans that your company, Serenity Forge, is going to venture into the augmented reality? Um, I believe that AR, so augmented reality, mm-hmm. um, is going to be very, um, very much infused into our future, no matter what it may be. Um, I mean, VR, VR is kind of the big hype right now, the virtual mm-hmm. re- real- reality. But um, um, when, when it comes down to it, AR is kind of your your real world interactions, right? VR is kind of your escape. So, so real world applications, you see. Uh, tons of hardware out there like Hololens and uh, Magic Leap and all these things being developed by all these large companies. Um, it's gonna come eventually. You know, ten years down the road, I'm pretty sure AR is not gonna be AR anymore. It's really just gonna be yeah, life. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, everyone will have it. It will just be the thing that people have. Right, right. Yeah. It's kind of like having a computer in your pocket. That's so hard to believe. Uh, ten, twenty years ago, and nowadays we all have it. You talk about all these benefits of playing video games briefly. But where is the line between that and playing them too much? Yeah, so I think the um, Jay McGonigal, uh, a researcher, uh, author, uh, I, I mean, she's she's just all around superstar. Uh, she once uh, conducted a research uh, that said that uh, if you play more than twenty one hours of video games per week, then that is too much. Uh, basically, uh, there is a study that showed that your standard of living is going to increase the more you play video games up until twenty one hours per week. Uh, so, so that's a, that's an interesting stat. Zhenghua, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Zhenghua Yang is the founder and CEO of Serenity Forge in Boulder. There, he and his team developed value-driven video games. You can see a trailer uh, for the game, Foresighted Fantasy, at cprnews.org. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Imagine a dance routine for a horse, complete with music and costumes for both the rider and the animal. It's called Freestyle Reigning. And it will return to the Colorado State Fair that starts tomorrow. Riders take horses through spins and sliding stops, racing the horse full tilt, then suddenly stopping as the horse's hind legs skid in the dirt. 16-year-old Lindsey Gwynn of Berthoud will perform in the freestyle reigning competition at the State Fair on Labor Day weekend. And she joined us from Fort Collins. Lindsey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you describe some of the moves a reigning horse performs? We do spins where they'll spin on their back hind leg and they'll just spin around in one area, kind of like when you're spinning around on one foot like a ballerina or something like that. And then we'll also do stops and you just run down the pen as fast as you can and you stop and your horse will just slide through the sand. On its hind legs, you um, slides through, yeah? Mm-hmm, yeah. And then we do lead changes. So you'll be loping, which is kind of like a run for us. In a way, except theirs is slower because we're not actually making them run. And they'll be leading with one leg farther forward. And then for the lead change, you'll just tell them to switch which leg they're leading with. And then they'll be on a different lead. And so what is the most difficult move that you do? Uh, It kind of depends for each horse. Some of them struggle with more things than others. My horse, she's not super great at turning around or spinning, but she can change leads and stop really well. And what's your horse's name? Natalie. Natalie. And how long have you uh, been riding Natalie? For probably about five years. Did you get her as a baby? My parents, they bred her parents together, and my dad trained her, and then I've been riding her. 
Do you talk to each other when you're when you're actually in this competition? Because you're running and racing and then doing these stops and slides and, and turning. Do you have a good connection with that horse to do that? Yeah, I think so. I don't really talk to her. I mean, I'll tell her what to do with using my legs and my body. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I'll tell her that we're almost done because she doesn't like to run as much. And so she gets tired. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, we're almost done. Your event is specifically called Freestyle Raining. What differentiates that from regular raining? The freestyle raining, you pick a song that you want to ride to, and then you'll get a costume for yourself and maybe your horse, and then you'll kind of match your pattern up with the song. So maybe in the chorus, you'll do some really fast circles while you run around, or you can stop or spin, and then in the slower parts, you might just jog around or lope around. It's kind of like a dance routine with a horse. Pretty much, yeah. And what song did you choose this year? American Soldier by Toby Keith. I'm out here on the front line To sleep in peace tonight American Soldier I'm an American And how did you pick that song? I really like that song. I love Toby Keith and that song's really good. And then it just works really well with my pattern, and I can kind of figure out what all really would fit in with that. How long does it take to to think up a, a routine? It depends. Um, a couple of my songs, I've had a couple days where I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. And then this song, I actually kind of figured out what I wanted to do within the first day that I picked it. So. And last year, I understand you wrote to the Elvis song, Kentucky Rain. Yeah, I did. And what did you wear during that? I bought a jumpsuit that was white and bedazzled, and then I had an Elvis wig on. And we've posted a video of you dressed as Elvis at CPRnews.org. I understand reining grew out of the kinds of skills that Western cowboys and their horses had to have to be able to wrangle cattle. Tell us a little bit more about your horse and and how you trained her to do this. I guess I just kind of trained her for... Um, a lot of the time, you need to be able to run after like maybe cattle and then stop suddenly, maybe not slide on the ranch or anything, but uh, stop suddenly. And then there's rollbacks where after you stop, you'll just kind of turn around, do a 180 really fast and lope out of there. And if you're chasing a cow or something like that, you want to be able to just get right out of there and go get it. It's really being nimble with the horse because you have to move around all the cattle and get them into one place. Yeah, pretty much. You ride in a variety of horse show competitions, not just raining. Why do you like freestyle raining? It's different. It's not, I've only done it once a year for three years now. Um, You can't do it at every show. And it's so much fun just to be able to pick your song and have it unique and your costume unique. And it's kind of more of a bonding experience with your horse. I'm assuming all the other riders are also in costume and their horses are in costume. Have you seen any unique uh, performances or costumes during your uh, time at the competitions? Yeah, last year or maybe the year before, one of my friends did the theme song to Ghostbusters, and he dressed up as the Ghostbuster and his horse was a ghost. So. <laughs> Ghostbusters! Something strange in your neighborhood. Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! Something weird. The Olympics are over now. But some people may have seen the dressage competition. It kind of reminds me of that. Is raining similar in any way? 
my mom kind of explains raining as a faster dressage pattern. Mm. I'm not sure. I haven't really watched dressage, but from what I know of it, I don't think it is because we do so many different maneuvers. And it's a little bit different in terms of the, the way it came about, of course, with you've got the Western side with this uh, freestyle raining. Yeah. How does it feel to be kind of doing this when you're actually out in the arena with your horse? You still get nerves from it because if you don't get nerves, then it doesn't mean anything. That's what my dad always says. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, your horse, they know their job and you know what you need to do. And it's a lot of fun when you get out there and you can do what you want and maybe run fast if you want to, because that's always a thrill. Now, after the events, do you do you kind of cool down with your horse? Do you take her down for a bath or something? Or how do you both kind of calm down after a competition? Because you're in front of all those people doing this. It must seem a little bit exciting. And then you kind of have that rush and then the thing's over. After we ride, we'll walk around so that she can catch her breath and kind of cool down. And then I'll go back to the stalls and I'll unsaddle her and then I'll go wash her off with like soap and water, kind of just like giving her a shower. Lindsay, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. 16-year-old Lindsay Gwynn of Berthet is competing in this year's youth reigning competition at the Colorado State Fair. The fair opens tomorrow and runs through September 5th. We've posted videos and photos of Lindsay competing at CPRnews.org. And that's our show for today. Next week, we'll have a regular conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper. Send your questions for the governor at news.cpr.org, and you may hear his answer on the air. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks to our audio engineers, John Zuko and director Michelle P. Fulcher, and our audio advisor, Michael Hughes and Matt Hurst.